Welcome to church, everybody. Isn't it good to be here? You, you, know, you know, I think about this, this term, church. Do you ever stop to think about what church really is? Because it may not be exactly what you think. I think all of us have these uh, visions, these pictures of what the church is. And, and I think if we go back all the way to its early usage of the term, the, ch- the, the term church comes from a Greek word called ekklesia. And the word ekklesia actually means a, a called out assembly. And I think of when, when we think about the church in 2023, we think about a building, we think about a place, and we think about this spiritual, religious, uh, I guess, uh, uh, just place in a city and a community, but the, the word church or ecclesia was not always a spiritual or a religious term. It was actually a very cultural term 2,000 years ago. Anytime there was a united group of believers that would gather together, they were considered an ecclesia. And you know, we're here in this place and we call this church, but this really isn't the church. This is, this is wood, this is bricks, this is mortar, this is stone, this is just a place. And this building that we meet in is not sacred because it's not the church. This is a resource for the ecclesia, for the church. And it's a beautiful resource that we have. This is just part of it. For those of you who are brand new here at Crossroads and you've never seen our whole facility, man, we have some wonderful saints of God that have sacrificed over the last nearly 60 years to make this place a resource to the community. And this is the older portion. On the other half of our building, we have even more amazing resources. But again, it's not the church. The church does not need pews. The church does not need a pulpit. It doesn't need uh, communion cup holders. It doesn't need steeples. It doesn't need these chandeliers. The church is really wherever Believers in Jesus Christ gather together. That's where the church is. This place is not sacred. We are sacred because we are the church of Jesus Christ. And the fact that the the church actually exists to this day is kind of a minor miracle if you think about it. The church really should have never gotten off the ground 2,000 years ago. In fact, the idea of a church is kind of a radical concept, isn't it? The fact that you would come here and you would sit down in a pew, and you would listen to some guy get up in front of you for 30 minutes and just ramble and preach at you and step on your toes and tell you how, how short you've fallen of God's glory, how much you need a savior, how you can't rescue yourself, that I would come in here and I would preach at you, and you would walk away and say, thank you very much. That's kind of countercultural, isn't it? The fact that we gather in this place and we, we unite around a man who was a rabbi, he was a teacher 2,000 years ago in an area all the way across the world, and he called himself God. He considered himself to be God. The fact that 2,000 years later, we still worship this man who called himself God is kind of a radical thing that we would believe so strongly in the message and the mission of this man named Jesus that we would actually give a portion of our income to advancing this message? It's kind of crazy if you stop and think about it, that we would believe so strongly in this mission that we would expect that we are going to walk out of step with culture, that we are going to be counter to culture, and that the culture might actually hold us in contempt, that they may actually hate the things that we stand for the things that we preach, the things that we believe in, 
And we would welcome that, that we would expect that. If you stop and think about the church and how radical this concept is, it's actually a little bit crazy that it still exists. Who would sign up for this? The people of our cities, the people of our culture, the people of North Central Ohio would look at us, those that are far from Jesus would look at us and say, why in the world would these people gather in this place every Sunday morning? But this movement called the church, it shouldn't have survived its infancy, but it did. Because the man who claimed to be God, the man who claimed to to be the way, the truth, and the life, who was radical and everybody wanted to shut down 2,000 years ago, actually walked out of a grave. And when you walk out of the grave, when you hold the keys of life and death and you have power over the grave and you hold the keys to hell itself, that means that we should listen to you, that we should surrender to you. And this man named Jesus He is the reason that the church just won't stop. And so, you know, 2,000 years ago, there were 120 believers that gathered together in an upper room. And they rallied around this idea that Jesus had resurrected from the, from the grave, that their, that their teacher, that their rabbi actually was who he said he was, and they would not stop. And these believers could not keep the message to themselves. And so they told their neighbors, they told their friends, they told their families, they put their lives on the line because they believed so strongly in who Jesus was. And this 120 believers in just a few short decades turned into thousands. And those thousands actually became so large that they took over the city that was the center of Judaism, the city of Jerusalem. It was actually overtaken by the church's converts. And when the Romans and the Jewish authorities couldn't suppress it, they began to execute its founders. They they began to kill the OGs, if you will, the originals, the apostles, those original converts that stood um, for the way of Jesus. And if you think about it, this is not how you get people to sign up for a mission or a movement, is it? You, you, you promise them persecution, you promise them difficult times, but this movement kept going. In spite of the persecutions, in spite of the sufferings, in spite of the, spite of the hardships and the difficulties, the church persevered, and to this day, nearly a third of all the world's population claims a faith in Jesus. And right here in Ontario, Ohio, right here in this place, we are Christ's version of the church. We are an ecclesia, and we won't stop. And the church is the little engine that could. For two millennia, it's just kept plugging along despite the persecution and despite all of the hardships, despite the ups and downs, the church perseveres. And I was reminded why the church perseveres when I was reading in Acts chapter 21 this week. I was actually doing some personal studies, and man, I read about this story of Paul and one scenario, one situation that he found himself in, and I realized that Paul was persistent in every gospel-proclaiming opportunity that he had. Paul, as we all mostly know, we should know, Paul was one of the church's founders. He was the greatest missionary to ever live. He was a torchbearer and a contender for the faith. And he witnessed the resurrected Christ. He had an encounter with Jesus. And it changed the entire course of his life. From that point on, there's no quit in him. From that point on, he was kind of like the modern day Rocky Balboa. You know those movies? Rocky always had one more round. He always had one more round, no matter how many times he got hit, no matter how many times he got knocked down, no matter how like discombobulated he got, he always got back up off the mat. 
And that's exactly what we see from Paul. He always had one more round in him. And in Acts chapter 21, we're going to see kind of what happens to him that proves to us his perseverance. Because Paul was desperate to go to, to the city of Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why he wanted to go there so badly, but he needed to get to Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, he finally arrives there. He didn't know what was going to happen when he arrived. He didn't know what God had in store for him or what was planned. He just knew that this was where he was compelled by the Spirit of God to go. And nothing would stop him. So while he's in Jerusalem, I'm kind of giving you the backstory as we get into Acts 21. The city of Jerusalem just kind of goes cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, man. Like it goes nuts when Paul shows up because they know his reputation. They know what he's capable of. They know his message and the Jews and the authorities, the spiritual elites, they don't want anything to do with Paul. They don't want him in their city. And they even accuse Paul of defiling the Jewish temple by bringing a Greek man into the temple, which he did not do. And so the city is worked up into this massive frenzy, and they begin beating Paul. They begin beating, beating, him, beating him to the point of death because this man, this message, this movement, it must be stopped. And they found their moment where they were going to stop it dead in its tracks. And so the Roman soldiers... They get wind of what's going on, that there's an uprising, that there is commotion in a certain part of the city near the temple, and they're dispatched to go see what's happening, to, to, to um, kind of calm down the mob, so to speak, and, and they go and they grab Paul, and they're trying to get the story. They're trying to get witnesses and testimonies that will share, like, what exactly happened here that got everybody so worked up? And in the middle of all of that, the crowd was so bloodthirsty that they kept beating Paul almost to the point of death. And they would not stop. And it got so bad that the man that the Romans were there to arrest, Paul, they actually had to like grab him and physically carry him out of the mob in order to save his life so that they could figure out what exactly was happening here. And so through this entire narrative in Acts chapter 21, we see a quality, we see several qualities in the man named Paul that, that was never say die. Paul never quit. He was perseverant. He never gave up. And these qualities are all these years later, why the church still exists to this day, because men like Paul persevered through the toughness, through the difficulties. And these qualities are the same things that we need to be chasing after as a church today, because we are now stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ all of these years later. And think about this fact that over the last 2000 years, Every organization that has ever come uh, into existence has risen and fallen. No organization has survived the last 2,000 years except the church. So when Jesus said in his gospels, when he said, I will build my church, church, I will build my church in North Central Ohio. I will build my church on Lexington Spring Mill Road. I will build my church at Crossroads and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He knew he was going to be building upon a foundation of faithful followers just like you. He knew what he was building upon. And so, uh, man, people just like Paul, and we need to advance the gospel just like Paul does in, in this story. And, and so when believers follow the example of Paul, not only will the church not stop, it actually advances in some weird way. So what do we see in Paul that we need to emulate today in our lives as we live out our Christian faith? I've got three quick points for you this morning. 
the first thing that we see in this narrative, and we're going to get into Acts chapter 21, is we see calmness in the midst of chaos. Paul is calm in the midst of chaos. And here's what most of us understand, all right? The things that are really worth chasing after in life often involve high pressure. And pressure is the cooker for panic, isn't it? You know, I was at a, I was at a varsity basketball game last night for Mansfield Christian. A couple of the ladies that are here in this choir were playing on that team. And we were playing the, the Loudonville Lady Redbirds. And Loudonville has a really, really good team. Well, they have one really, really good player. And then they have a team around her. But they are the class of the conference that Mansfield Christian is in. And, uh, man, they're really, really difficult to beat. In fact, our girls, since I've been here, have never beat them. They have one player last night that put up 40 points. And just to give you a comparison, how much did we score last night? Less than 40 points. (laughs) Okay, they have one player that outscored our entire team. And so in the very beginning of this game, you could see the tension was rising with these girls. Like they were getting amped up. The adrenaline was flowing. They get out there on the floor and it's, you know, it's high pace. They're running back and forth. And all of a sudden, you know, this girl starts putting up shots. She drains a three. She's driving to the hoop. She is just scoring at will. And you could see our girls just tensing up and they start getting amped and they start panicking and they're running up and down the floor trying to keep pace and they're throwing the ball away, committing turnovers left and right. And some of them panicked. And the whole time as a dad, I'm watching this and I'm just yelling from the stands as if they could actually hear me. Stop panicking. Just calm down. It's going to be okay. The truth is, is that some of us are panickers. Any of you, when the pressure is turned on, you panic, willing to admit you're a panicker. Okay, a few of you. If you are honest, I'm a panicker. It may not come across that way, but I panic every time I'm in front of people. I'm a little panicked right now, in fact. Um, I get that way every time I preach. Some of you are performers, though. Any of you a performer? Like when the, the temperature is turned up, when the heat rises, you kind of, for whatever reason, you just rise to the occasion. Anybody like that? Okay. A few of you as well. Man, that is a, a gift from God to be able to stand to the pressure. And uh, man, here's Paul. Paul is not a panicker. He just stays calm. Acts chapter 21. We're going to start reading in verse 33, down through the first part of verse 37. It says this, Then the tribune came up and they arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with chains. He inquired who, um, who, who, uh, sorry, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried out by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. They wanted Paul dead. And this is what he says in in, in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? But you think about this. They had been beating Paul. Like, I'm sure he was bloody. I'm sure he was bruised. I'm sure he was a little bit scared how this was all going to turn out. And he stays calm through all of the pressure, through all of the chaos, through the whole religious ruckus. Paul just keeps his cool, man. Like, he is as cool as the other side of the pillow. You ever heard that phrase? That's Paul in this situation. And I think as we look around the world, we can see the chaos of society all around us. And the truth of the matter is, is that some of us Christians, because we're losing our place 
and our leadership in society. We're losing our influence because the culture is shifting further and further away from the things of God. We're starting to panic. But that's not who we should be. That's not how we should respond. There should be a calmness about us as we are a church that will never stop. And the promise of God is that it will never fail. We should keep that promise in the back of our heads and stay calm. We should be a witness to the world that when everything is burning and everything is falling apart, the world looks to the church and says, why are those people so chill? Like, why are they so relaxed? Why do they not panic? Why do they not fret? Because there's a calm in the chaos. The church needs to have peace, a peace that passes understanding in the chaos of persecution. And that's exactly what Paul had. Number two, he had a confidence in the truth. He had a confidence in the truth. Paul had been in this moment before. Look at verse 39 of chapter 21. And this is what it says. And Paul replied, I'm a Jew. I'm I'm from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. And I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when, uh, when there was a, a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Here's Paul and he's saying, listen, people, settle down. I have something to say. Can I just get your attention for a moment? And the crowd, what do they do? They stop and they listen. Paul has a story to tell. He's got a, he's got a defense for himself. He wants to speak the name of Jesus. And what I love about Paul is that he is confident and his calmness earlier on comes from his confidence in who Jesus is, what Jesus has called him from and what Jesus has called him to. And he calmly addresses the crowd. He doesn't seek retribution. He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't get angry with the crowd. He just wants to speak to this crowd. And he wants to tell them his story because his story is unique. And this is his moment to be a witness to those who are watching. He's walked with Jesus for far too long to question where God was in the midst of this chaos. You know, someone once said, confidence comes not from the awareness of your competence, but from the assurance of God's presence. Folks, we may not have the most competencies. We may not be the smartest people. We may not be the deepest theologians, but we don't necessarily need to be all of those things. What we need to do is have one competency, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. You know, God certainly used well-educated men and bold men like Paul throughout the whole New Testament and throughout the history of the church. God has used spiritual giants just like Paul. But you know what I love about the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is that the Bible celebrates the people that God used that really had not much to offer. And the way that God used their stories and how God transformed their lives, there were people in scripture who had no education that said, I have one competency. When you ask me about my life and why it's been changed, I know one thing, and that's Jesus. All I know is that once I was lost and now I'm found. All I know is that I was blind and now I can see. I was lost and now I have direction. My life was in desperation and now I have hope. All throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, there are people just like that, that had that one competency, Jesus Christ. Paul, man, he was sure of who was in control of the situation. He knew what his mission was and he had surrendered his heart in his heart that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was a dead man walking, if you think about it. He knew it. 
He, there was something inside of him that just knew he was going to die for his faith. And he had resigned that this was his fate in life. And when you're a dead man walking and you really have nothing selfish to live for, man, you are a dangerous individual because nothing will stop you. And that's exactly who Paul was. He had a confidence that came from his, that came from the truth. He had a calmness in the chaos. And then thirdly, he had a calling to cling to. He had a calling to cling to. You know, Paul's confidence came from knowing what God called him to do, and that was to preach Christ and him crucified. Right here, right in this moment, in Acts chapter 21, is where we see Paul. And this is the moment he kind of probably knew he signed up for. He knew this was coming at some point in his life. When he said yes to Jesus, to surrendering his life, turning from those pharisaical ways and following Jesus, this new religion, this new way, he knew that these were the moments that he was signing up for when he said yes to surrendering to God. And the only thing that would give Paul confidence was the memory of what Jesus had saved him from. Church, we're called to the world. We're called not to be like the world, but to show the world a better way. And that's the way of Christ. Some of you might be saying to yourselves, man, I'm young. I don't know what Christ has called me to. Some of you might be saying, I've never heard the call of God in my life. William Booth, who some of you might know is the founder of the Salvation Army. He once said this so many years ago, not called, did you say? More like not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you to go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join him in his march to publish his mercy to the world. Folks, it is no longer a matter of if you're called, but more how you're called and where you're called to. That When we signed up for a life of following Christ, we signed up for the Great Commission. His call is clear in our lives. Scripture is clear in what he wants us to do. So the question that you have to ask is not, it's not, God, you know, have you called me? It's, God, what are you calling me to and where are you calling me to? Church, we need to be a people that becomes a movement that goes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. My question to you this morning is, can you say that the glory of Christ and the great commission is your magnificent obsession because it was Paul's? You know how I know that? Because Paul knew that this was going to happen. Check this out, Acts chapter 21. Just a few verses before our narrative here, Paul is in a different city. And he is on his missionary journey trying to get to Jerusalem. And he's hanging out with Christians in a totally different city. And this is what they tell him, starting in verse 3. I want to read two short sections. Acts 21, verse 3. When Paul had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, kneeling down um, on the side of the beach. We prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home." 
The Christians are saying, the Spirit of God is prophesying to us, and we are prophesying to you, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen. Check this out. Paul still continues his journey. He gets to the next city, starting in verse 8 of Acts chapter 21. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and he stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his, bound his own feet and hands. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is God speaking to us. This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, We and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. The second time, Paul is begged not to go to the city of Jerusalem because he's going to be bound by the Jews. He's going to be taken by the Gentiles and he's going to suffer for the name of Christ. But this is what I love about Paul and his never say die, never quit attitude. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. We gave up. We stopped trying to win him over and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. This is the persistence of Paul. This is a man who lived on mission. He knew what God called him to. He was calm in the chaos. He had, he had, he had um, man, just courage, and he had confidence in the truth, and he had a calling that would not allow him to stop, would not allow him to surrender. Folks, if God says go, ignore everyone who says no, because you have to follow the call of God. Church, if, if we're going to if we're going to be the, the 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 most faithful stewards of the church in our generation, then we have to be committed to this call, just like believers like Paul were two thousand years ago. We have to be willing to be persecuted. We have to be willing to be outsiders. We have to be willing to maybe even die for our faith. When believers have that mindset, when we have that approach and that mentality, when our conviction of a risen Jesus is that strong, there is nothing that will stop us. Let's pray.